Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. For our after luncheon address, I'm, I'm truly thrilled to, to introduce to you a man who's both been a leading, one of the uh, leading blockchain technology entrepreneurs, as well as one of Cato's really great friends. Uh, as many of you know, uh, uh, Patrick Byrne recently decided to take a break from running both uh, Overstock.com, one of the first retailers, the first big, big retailer to uh, accept Bitcoin, and T0, the blockchain trading platform he introduced last fall. Uh, and so I'm particularly honored, we're particularly honored that he's taken time to come here today to discuss his various blockchain-related endeavors with us. So ladies and gentlemen, please uh, let's give an especially warm welcome to the one and only Patrick Byrne. Thank you very much, sir. And it is an honor. Gosh, what an honor to speak here. I, uh, uh, I have my records from the late 80s, the first places I ever started to make, the first place I ever started to make donations to in the 80s when I was a college student was this place called Cato. I was sending about $10 a year and $25 a year. And as it, I guess it seems like a lot of people know, yesterday I took a medical leave of absence for what may well be good, well, for good. Uh, and I thought, how fitting. And this is the last appointment on my calendar before I'm free for life. Do not have another appointment on my calendar. Canceled everything else, but the last, I sort of wanted to complete the circle. The last, uh, it kind of began and ended with at Cato for me. Um, so the main event of the blockchain revolution is as follows. Some of you might not be happy to hear this, but I mean, well, no, actually, Cato, everybody in Cato is going to be happy to hear this. People in Washington in general are not going to be happy to hear this. Uh, the main event is for 6,000 years, <clears throat> humans have had this problem. We engage in consensual exchange, but you can't really, you don't know me, you can't trust me, I can't trust you. I'm trading you a camel for this gold coin. Uh, you don't know whether you can trust, has the gold coin been debased? So there's a business model. And the business model is he who has the monopoly on violence in this area comes up with a gold coin, puts his face on it, says, I'll kill anybody who debases my gold coin. That's just a business model. It's a business model to monetize your monopoly on violence. We call that government, but it's a business model. There's a whole bunch of business models like that. Land titling and so on and so forth. Uh, all kinds. I've been in a Silicon Valley company where they have a whiteboard about as long as that wall with 160 things spelled out on things they can disrupt. Uh, and, and that's what the blockchain does is it lets us have, for the first time in 6,000 years, we can have peer-to-peer -peer exchange where trust is not an issue. And that's why it is so disruptive. I think it's more disruptive than the internet because ultimately the internet was about moving information around frictionlessly, but this is about moving value around frictionlessly. So that means there's all these institutions that civilization has accumulated. It's centralized institutions that civilization has accumulated for thousands of years, like barnacles on our hull, that are going to be disrupted, that, are going to, that we're going to shave off. 
and there's nothing anyone can do about it. The and I'm just at this point, all this technology can be recreated in any graduate department of mathematics anywhere in the world. So there's really nothing that they can do about it. And those owners of those centralized institutions, be they government or be they private, uh, there's a number of them that we're going to see disrupted. I was recently at a at something called the Satoshi Roundtable, which is like this secret forum of about 50, <laughs> 50 of the uh, big names in this community. And just for them, there were like a bunch of kids with who've discovered space ray guns. And they're sitting around talking about, you know, you could have, well, for example, it's first of all, it's autism central. It's every, everybody in cryptography, that, you know, they sit down, they throw out these crazy ideas. But like, have you realized that, you know, the government is just a way for us to figure out like how much to spend on the Navy? And you could actually come up with, if you had a blockchain-based economy, you could program it so every, you know, 3% of every transaction gets high, you know, taken off and puts in a fund. And then we have some sort of algorithm, a social choice algorithm lets us choose. And then the will of the people is represented that way. And then that automatically goes to the Department of the Navy. And you've just disrupted Congress. I mean, they just throw out these ideas like this that sound crazy, but you listen to them and... Yeah, I guess you know Congress is just a mechanism for us to figure out how much we want to spend on the Navy, and you can do it all without them, and you'd probably get a much more accurate representation of people's collective will. Uh, uh, so I'm going to walk you through another one that's going to happen. It's the one I've been working on. I mean, there are so many ideas like that floating around that are really quite big. Uh, here's my favorite. I got into a little beef with Wall Street. Some of you may have heard about it 12 years ago. Uh, on that. Uh, here's an article about me in Wired two years ago calling me the Bitcoin Messiah. I am not the Messiah of anything. but And it's actually the main event of Bitcoin is not Bitcoin, as, I, as the world gets now. main event of Bitcoin is the blockchain itself. Uh, and that's And the second thing was the scourge of Wall Street thing, which I am guilty as charged. I'm, I'm happy. I'm having 2007, and now that I'm a free man, I can really say this. Uh, 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 in January 2007, a very prominent hedge fund operator and himself an okay guy sat me down and he said, he asked to see me. I went to see him. And his opening words when we sat down were, Patrick, I want you to know you're the most single hated man I've ever known in my entire life. You used to be kind of a golden boy on Wall Street, but now you could kill people. And we wouldn't hate you. Like, we hate you. So I'm going to tell you why. And, I'm, and to me, you know, carve that on my tombstone, as far as I'm concerned, that in 2007, I was the most hated man. That's high praise. Uh, when the, when, 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 uh, the financial system Chernobyled in 2008, a few weeks into it, Alan Greenspan was brought before Congress to say, you know, he was tired, but they were asking, what are your thoughts? And Greenspan said something that the left has jumped on. There are additional regulatory changes. Sorry, he's said something that the left has jumped on. Oh, well, see, even Alan Greenspan says markets don't work. But listen closely to what he says. There are additional regulatory changes that this breakdown of the central pillar of competitive markets requires in order to return to stability particularly in the areas of fraud, settlement, and securitization. So we all know what fraud was. That was Bernie Madoff. 
securitization, things like mortgage-backed securities, collateralized debt obligations. This settlement thing he mentions really has been overlooked, although I just saw Bill Gross came out in a television interview about a month ago, and he said, well, deep down, 2008 was really the settlement system froze, and he's correct. And Warren Buffett has said the same thing. It's the settlement system froze up. What is settlement? And this sounds dull as dishwater, but it's really important. It's the, it's the big enchilada we're going to disrupt. Settlement is the legal name for if grandpa wants to buy a baseball glove from, for his neighbor, they make the, the exchange, and the actual exchange of the value in the baseball glove is the settlement of the transaction. Happens in the stock market, too. Grandpa's buying some stock from a hedge fund guy, and the changing of money and stock, that's the settlement of the trade. Of course, we don't have grandpa talking to hedge funds. They're each represented by brokers who actually do the settlement. But the truth is, it's not that simple. There, historically, it looked like this. I went in 1969, November, my father took me to Wall Street, and I was so, he wanted me to sort of get enamored of Wall Street. All I cared about there were these guys on bicycles. That's all I remember. There were these guys on bicycles with burlap sacks. And it turns out they had, they were called back then stock runners or jobbers, stock jobbers. And as people made trades at the brokerages, these guys on bicycles rode all over Wall Street with, you know, sacks of certificates. And your client sold my, or my client, my, I had a client who sold 100 or 80 shares to your client, and I show up with a certificate for 100 shares at your brokerage, and we clip the corner, and you and I both initial it, and, and that counts as 80. And they had this crazy system that worked like that on paper. In the 1960s, the volume in the capital market quadrupled, and the guys on the bicycles couldn't keep up anymore. They log jammed. And from people, unless maybe some of the old timers here remember, Wall Street from 1968 to 1971 was, it was called the Great Wall Street Paperwork Crisis. It was uh, only open four days a week, it was traded about four hours a day. And that was to give the guys on bicycles time to catch up. 1971, the SEC called the industry together. The industry, wanted to go to an electronic peer-to-peer -peer settlement system. The SEC instead, and by the way, there were two options. One was electronic peer-to-peer, -peer, and the other, well, the industry wanted the peer-to-peer, -peer, and that's the birth of NASDAQ. NASDAQ was formed in part, all these brokerages, uh, securities dealers getting together, that was born out of that movement, but the SEC pushed another solution called a central security depository. In the US, it's called the DTCC. By the way, I've now made good. I've now made friends with the DTCC. I don't mean to be offending. And I actually, the CEO I quite like, a guy named Michael Botson. And I've come to quite like him, even though 10 years ago we were, you know, I was calling them the Death Star, and they were doing saying nasty things about me. I actually like them. And I realized that we're all organized. We all care about the same things. They, uh, they, uh, they're not, it's like Jessica Rabbit said, I'm not bad, I was just drawn this way. You know, these guys aren't bad. It was all just drawn this way back in the 1970s. And they, and they created an, 
a central security depository, a centralized institution through which things would trade. But it's really slightly more complicated than that. <coughs> they have a nominee firm called CD and Company. And I'd like to add, oh, by the way, I've, I just heard somebody, mm. <laughs> there's a saying on Wall Street, three things you never talk about on Wall Street are God, politics, and CD and Company. <laughs> Who owns any stock in a publicly traded company in America? Okay. All of us with our hands up are incorrect. None of you actually own any stock. You legally do not own any stock. I'm going to show you what you own. Uh, all the shares of American corporations are owned by a company no one's ever heard of. The actual legal ownership is a company no one's ever heard of. They own 98% of the stock. All of 98% of the corporate stock in America is owned by CD and company. They generate share entitlements, basically what a casino would call a marker, or you and I would call an IOU for those shares, which it's like you, they, it's almost like an electronic or a Polaroid. You, you put the stock here, you take a photo, then we're going to trade the Polaroids. That gets moved into the DTCC, and the money in this and these share entitlements, the I, the markers, trade in accounts there. <clears throat> There's actually about a hundred of what are called clearing brokers in America. They are brokers who are plumbed directly into the DTCC. And besides them, there's about 3,500 uh, other brokers called referring brokers who are plumbed into them. So you have a hub and spoke system where the spokes become the hubs of new spokes. And uh, these share entitlements are, are scattered through the system and there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between the share entitlements and the underlying shares. That's what I freaked out about 12 years ago. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> it's fractional reserve banking without a reserve requirement. Uh, and as you're trading stock, what's really going on is there's these share entitlements. You think you're trading stock. Is There's all this. This is a pig's breakfast to me. It's a guy who builds things like... and. There, these, these markers are being traded around the system. And all you own, all you have, you, a client of a referring broker, going to a clearing broker, going to the DTCC, all you have, uh, going to CDNC, you have a contract against the firm who has a contract against the firm who has a contract against the firm who has a contract against another firm who actually owns everything. And nobody knows it. But if you go down in your brokerage statement, page eight, upside down, backwards, in Greek, it tells you this kind of stuff if you piece it all together. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't seem like good institutional design to me. And it was finally pushed through on the basis that this was a temporary solution. And of course, 1978, uh, the temporary solution, switching costs being what they are, this became permanent. And this is what we've been living with since. Didn't come out of a burning bush. Something we can change. Something we invented when I was you know, playing high school football not far from here. That's all it is. We don't, uh, people, there, however, there's all kinds of entrenched interests who want it to stay this way. And the essence of my fight 11 or 12 years ago was there's so many opportunities for mischief in this kind of a system that you don't. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons you don't want this. And I have to say, 
and and there was a there was a theory at the time. I'm afraid that the people, those of us who like markets and believe that markets are relatively efficient, were generally uh, unconcerned about the system. Because the, the prevailing ideology was, well, it doesn't really matter if there's slop, <coughs> pardon me, slop in this system or something wrong with this. It all comes out in the wash anyway. Well, it all comes out in the wash, you know, on most days. <laughs> it all comes out on most days. But you can think of a, the, in metal, in metallurgy, there's the concept of a shear strength. When you have a piece of metal and you bend it, the molecule, as it bends, the molecules flow smoothly past each other. And that's the act of bending. But under enough force, the molecules, the flow becomes jagged and chaotic, and it's no longer smooth. And that's the shearing strength. Same thing can happen in a marketplace with prices. And by the way, there's layers and layers on top of this. There's ADRs and GDRs and ETFs now, which are the bulk of the market. So there's representations of representations of blah, 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 blah. And under enough force, that can shear. And that's what happened in 2008. And it's going to be lost to history. I was very surprised to see uh, uh, Bill Gross say this the other day on television, because it seems to have been so forgotten that this was actually underneath it. It's what, you know, the, the White House didn't act when Lehman went under. It was, the, it was Wednesday morning, a few days later, when the system, when the settlement system froze and began to crack is when the White House began to act. Um, the right way to fix a system like this, and as a guy who run, built warehouses and all kinds of things, the right way to fix a system like that, like the Wall Street bull, is you drag it behind the barn, and you kill it with an axe. That's how you fix a system like that. Let me show you a better system. The essence of the crypto revolution, as I said, is it lets us for the first time in 6,000 years have peer-to-peer -peer value exchange without central institutions. So that disrupts the central institutions whose business model is doing that for us now and adding trust to the equation. Imagine a ledger, grandpa and neighbor with a baseball glove, and they just have a ledger, like your granddad who ran a hardware store, the big old-fashioned ledger, except this ledger is magic. It's cryptographically protected. It's public and transparent. And when grandpa buys the baseball glove, his money is just some stacks of coins on this ledger. And the act of settlement is you're writing down one coin and you're writing in one coin for the neighbor. Or in the case of stock, you can have the money be coins on the ledger and stock be a different kind of coin on that ledger. And when they go to buy and sell stock, you're taking a coin away from one guy and adding it and taking a coin of stock away from one guy and adding it to the other. Seems, seems a lot simpler than this to me. So you can disrupt. Let me show that one again. All of these things, oh, uh, uh, all of that can be disrupted by that kind of a ledger. And just to tell you the power of that, <coughs> you measure the cost, the friction cost of trading stock generally in mills and, and cost per thousand shares traded. Typical retail investor, if you call up 
Oh, I don't want to name any names, but it, let's say, oh, I will. What the heck? Uh, Merrill Lynch. If you call it Merrill Lynch and you buy a thousand shares and then you sell a thousand shares, you're probably paying about forty or fifty dollars round trip. Uh, if you're a well-connected large institution who knows what you're doing, you can get you can probably get that down to eight dollars, four dollars each way. We believe this system uh, is going to do it for under a dollar. We think we can take the cost from $50 for retail and $8 for the big institutions down to under a dollar. And there's no opportunities for mischief. Imagine a version of Wall Street that can't be cheated, that all kinds of mischief that people have gotten up to can't even be done in this world. Uh, a version of Wall Street governed not just by regulators but by laws of mathematics and cryptography a version of Wall Street that can't be cheated. A friend of mine says they'll have to come up with a new name for it. Uh, <laughs> just, it's just a funny thought to many people, a version of Wall Street that you can't have mischief in. Uh, it's not just a theory anymore. We started something called T0 named for the, the settlement system runs in the US on a T plus three settlement cycle. That means when you and I buy stock on a Monday, it's actually a Thursday that the transaction settles three days later, T plus three. Our system we built, the trade is the settlement. The, the, it's, they're reunited. It's instantaneous. Uh, in fact, that's the motto of T0, is the trade is the settlement. And we're returning to that day when you and I made you know, the trade. We trade the baseball glove for the gold, or the camel for the gold, gold coin, and the trade is the settlement. Uh, a lot less can go wrong. We bought a... Uh, Overstock bought a company on Wall Street called Speedroute a year ago. Well, parts, we gobbled it up slowly. Uh, it does 2.5%. It's a smart routing system. does 2.5%. Now, I think 3 about 2.5% of the <coughs> order flow, equity order flow in the U.S. capital market. It came with its own ATS. That's a dark pool alternative trading system. Uh, the financial system, as the internet speaks HTTP to itself, the financial system speaks a language called FIX. So we bought something that was already FIX compliant at the heart of the system, already doing a, quite a large volume of the uh, trades on Wall Street. And we built all of our cryptographic efforts on top of it. So rather than try to mount Gox our way around the regulators, we said from the beginning, I'm, I'm exactly the kind of guy they, if they catch me doing something wrong, they're going to bury me under the prison. And so the, this, the, uh, the philosophy was we want to keep this super pure from the beginning. We bought something that was proper and correct, and then we did everything proper within it. Uh, we've, uh, on an April 1st of last year, ironically enough, April Fool's Day, a little backstory on that, I'll tell you someday when... Well, when the time's right, I'll say it publicly, uh, that uh, the SEC deemed approve on April 1st. Uh, deemed approval is an interesting process. It's when you tell the government, I'm going to do this unless you tell me otherwise that I can't. And in certain kind of regulatory situations, they have, a, in this case, 20 business days to say no. And on the afternoon of the 20th day, they called, and it sounded like they were, anyway, but they said, well, we're not going to say no. 
So it was deemed approved by the SEC. And then Overstock used it to, uh, well, Overstock uh, issued a private blockchain security. We issued the world's first blockchain security. It was a private bond, $5 million bond. I, well, there was a half million dollar bond to me in June. And then we did a $5 million bond with somebody called First New York in August. Uh, and it was just as I said, we <coughs> just wrote, you know, it was all in the blockchain. Then uh, we said we want to issue a public blockchain security. I've got an advantage on some of the other people working in this field because we have our own issuer. Overstock is a publicly traded company and we have funded this thing. So as T0 built the technology and got ready, Overstock applied to be the first company to issue a public security. Uh, we, we actually applied to the SEC. We got an application in that didn't mention blockchain securities. It's called an S3, a universal shelf. Got it completely approved, walked it through the system, got completely approved, and then we resubmit. The day it was approved, we rewrote it and added one sentence that said, yeah, so a, a universal shelf says, um, this is a document that covers me in the next five years if I issue stocks or bonds or preferreds or warrants or this or that or the other thing. And it said all that and they got approved and then we said, and a blockchain security. Well, six months and $2 million later, Jacob, are you here? I just ran into the lawyer who did a bunch of the work at Perkins Coie on this for us. He's now with R3. Ran into him downstairs. <clears throat> we got that approved in December. Uh, so, well, the SEC doesn't, they, they never want to say they approve a security offering because then people, it sounds, can market it like, hey, the SEC says this is okay. They, read, they registered or there's some term that meant they're not that. We, we, got, we got holy water sprinkled on it from the SEC in December of last year. Uh, now, uh, we also got live a product that supports uh, stock location, short, short selling uh, needs something called securities lending. And there's a lot of slop in the system of securities lending, or there used to be. I do have to hand it to the SEC. My, my nemesis of a decade ago is uh, got much more serious about this issue that was driving me crazy 10, 12 years ago, and has gotten much more severe on it. And actually, that's just improved things for us because they've gotten much more severe. You can't be nearly loosey-goosey like they were 10 years ago <clears throat> because it was in that loosey-goosiness that that big pig's breakfast I showed you, uh, some of the mischief enters. So we have a, a blockchain-based securities lending product live. Uh, it's in a, there's a regulatory cubby that says, well, you can introduce things on a test basis to existing clients, blah, blah, blah. And we uh, did that in, the, in September. Um, we are ready to issue and we applied for patents some time ago, quite a, some time ago. Thanks to John Wellborn, Dr. John Wellborn, who uh, used to work at Cato, PhD economist for George Mason. Uh, he worked with our, our guys on Wall Street. The intersection of ETFs and blockchain, we have two deep patents in, two uh, uh, provisionals. I think they will stand. 
Um, and we've built, we can do that. And that's a huge part of the market these days, ETFs. Um, in our normal modest fashion, we announced this by taking as an issue on NASDAQ, Overstock rented out the NASDAQ call for a day, and then we put up a 100-foot T0 ad and had a big celebration in the floor of NASDAQ. I like the NASDAQ guys, actually. My, my great mentor was the guy who built NASDAQ. Uh, and, I, and my attitude was they should love this. I mentioned that NASDAQ was formed from a desire in 1971 to have, among the broker-dealers, a peer-to-peer electronic settlement system. Well, that's what the blockchain lets us have. Uh, I thought they would love it. Uh, it turns out, not so sure they did. Uh, or maybe they just didn't like me announcing uh, that we can disrupt the US capital markets on the floor of NASDAQ. Never, never got clear on that. Uh, so anyway, that's the example of the central, well, I'm sorry, I clicked one screen farther than I should have. But that's the example of the central, the particular of the 160 centralized institutions that can be gone after. Uh, that's the one that we've gone after. We're going to leave Congress to you fine fellows here at Cato uh, to go after with the blockchain. Thank you very much. I have 15 minutes for questions. And we actually are graced with the presence of, I notice, Ms. Caitlin Long, who now, now that she is no longer in the, in the world of Morgan Stanley, has left Morgan Stanley, is perhaps can speak her mind. Caitlin Long is an Austrian economist par excellence, big shot at Morgan Stanley, but no, as of very recently, no longer and deeply, deeply immersed in the blockchain theory and culture. And if you were looking really for one real high-level, high-power Wall Street executive who is, is not a pretender, but is, is a, her veins run blockchain, that's, that's the lady. So, questions? Uh, OK, hi, I'm sorry. Grant, nice to see you. Thank you, Perry Amboring with the Chamber of Digital Commerce. Um, my question, Patrick, is about T0. What is the ultimate 5, 10, 15 goal for T0? And where do you see it going? Really? Wildest dreams, best case scenario. Now that I'm free, <laughs> I can say the truth. The truth is, what was the movie? James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause. Somebody asked some, maybe it was a Marlon Brando, wild, wild ones or something. They said, what are you rebelling against? And he said, what do you got? You know, <laughs> I think this can disrupt, well, like I said, I think you go after Congress with it. I think you can find the consent of the governed more accurately through a blockchain and transfer wealth to those services that we want government to provide for us without the intermediating institutions that we currently have and which most importantly are subject to capture, where the will of the, the consent of the governed gets somewhere between our individual consent and the, its amalgamation through social choice mechanisms. It runs through K Street. It runs, the, the whole f consent field gets distorted by a bunch of interests that we don't like. And you can come up with a mechanism to find, now I'm not saying we 
Yeah, well, anyway, you can come up with a mechanism that can do all that for without being distorted, without getting captured or bought off, and at far lower cost, far lower intermediate cost than uh, the system devised by our founders. That's something, you know, like I say, I think this system takes about 90% of the cost out of the friction costs out of the, of the middlemen uh, in, in that kind of a mechanism. So that's such an overwhelming competitive advantage. There's really it, it, nothing anyone can do about it. Nothing anyone's going to stop. Wall Street tried to stop this. Wall Street two years ago was trying to stop this. Not sure they're not trying. You know, they're all jumping on it, but they're not happy about it. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think when if, you know, if you think of there's a law and economics explanation for why certain things prospered in the common law, say the takings principle. The takings principle dates back to William of Ockham. And guys like Richard Epstein or Posner believe that the takings principle became embedded in the common law because if you got one shire who respects that principle and one shire that doesn't, the shire that does respect that principle has a competitive advantage that just expresses itself over time in sort of Darwinian selection. Well, similarly, there are, uh, this system is so much better. It's 90% cheaper, and it's not prone to man manipulation and mischief. Uh, it's just, and the same thing applies for, like I say, maybe 160 other business models, maybe more than that. But as you hang out in this crowd, the blockchain world, the world of Satoshi Nakamoto, who, by the way, I think uh, it may have happened yesterday or today. I don't know. I think Satoshi may be about to be revealed. Anyone hear this yet? I think you may be about to see, find out who Satoshi Nakamoto is. Did you know this, Caitlin? I think the world's about to find out. Um, anyway, it's just so much better a system that the competitive pressures are such that it's one way or another hook or hook. Entrenched interests of all flavors are going to block things where they can. But if I've got a business model with 90% lower operating cost than someone else's business model, that's just a meat grinder. It's just a meat grinder over time. So the shires that adopt this are going to have a fantastic advantage. Uh, it's funny. The I'm, I've been traveling all over the world. The US, even a year, I, I don't mean to diss the regulators anymore. We're all past that, I hope. The regulators here have been surprisingly farsighted. They, back in 20 years ago, there were moves to regulate the internet under, um, under Clinton. And Clinton had the foresight, got his, got to tip the hat, loath as I may be to do it. But to, uh, that he said, if we regulate the internet, it's going to move to China or France or something. So we're not going to. Same decision, I think, is being made by the regulators here. In fact, my experience is that somewhere about six months ago, the regulators started realizing this can be this can do their job for them. A whole bunch of the things regulators in the business of preventing become actually impossible in a blockchain-based system. So there's a number of regulators who have been, well, actually from the beginning, the CFTC was quite open-minded about it. The SEC was not so open-minded about it, probably because it came in with me. Uh, and the SEC and I have a long history from back in the Bush days. But this SEC is different. I'm not slagging them anymore. They've been, especially, especially in the last, say, six months or four months, 
They're, they're getting it. Everybody's getting the joke. FINRA, the regulators across the board, and then outside the country as well. We, we have people offering us free office space if we'll move this project to the UK or to Switzerland or to a couple countries in Asia really want this. Really, it's such a historic possibility. So I, I don't mean to paint the re regulators as sticks in the mud anymore. They get that this actually can do their job for them. In fact, after 2008, there's, I think, a $500 million budget for the SEC to get a consolidated audit trail going. And you can do consolidated audit trail in the blockchain for about a tenth of that cost. And, you know, so there's just such, there's, there's advantages for the buyers, the sellers, and the regulators. There's some people in the middle who aren't going to be too happy about it. Although they're, they're putting on a smile and saying they're jumping in the pool. Next question. Ma'am, am I supposed to be selecting the question? Okay, sorry. Hi, thank you. Gabriel Andrade from the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, I know you are investing in a Barbadian dollar uh, experiment. Very interesting to us. What's your view of this experiment? Or is not an experiment? Any other ideas of how to use it in other countries? Thank you. Yes. Oh, my gosh. This can be used... T0, besides T0, which is applying the blockchain to Wall Street, we recently just bought a significant interest in a Barbados company. The Barbados, <laughs> the Barbadian Central Bank, uh, uh, <laughs> pardon me, quite intelligently, about a month ago, said uh, they were the first central bank to say you can put our fiat on the blockchain. And they were given permission to do so. And a little company down there in the crypto movement did it. And we went and bought a nice stake in it. And everything I just, I, the speech I just gave about how the blockchain can disrupt Wall Street and create a true version of, let's say, a good version of Wall Street, the, uh, I could give the same talk on how all this can be done with central banking, not to eliminate central banking, although it could go that way if you want, but to create a, uh, a transparent and rigid version of central banking. Here's the big, oh can apply to remittances, which is a $500 billion industry, of which $75 billion gets taken by the guys in the middle. You can apply it to uh, payments instead of, you know, in, in un there's 87% of the world's poor are unbanked. Uh, suddenly, it, but cell phone penetration can be like 140%. Uh, everyone with a cell phone can be banked on the blockchain. You don't need the banks. Uh, okay. 23 seconds overdue. It's been really a great honor, my long relationship with Cato, and thanks for letting me finish my professional life here. <laughs>